May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts align with your spirit, O God, creator and redeemer. Amen. When Elizabeth and Horace ask the three of us who are on the path towards ordination as priests or deacons to preach over the next three weeks, there was a flurry of emails between Tony, Kate, and me about who would take which date. We were making our decisions around previous summer commitments and, at least for me, vacation plans. So when our schedules all aligned and I looked to see what the lectionary texts were for Sunday, July 11th, I thought, oh man. On what will likely be a lovely summer morning with fond memories of recent gatherings to celebrate Ed and Hope or celebrate the 4th of July, I have to get up here as a guest preacher and tell a gruesome story about a party that ended with a head on a food platter. Ed taught us that the good news is a feast, but we probably weren't imagining this kind of feast. The story of the banquet is inserted within a larger narrative about Jesus's growing ministry. Earlier in chapter 6, Jesus had tried to minister in his hometown of Nazareth, but he couldn't do miracles there because his own kin and neighbors didn't believe that this familiar carpenter, the son of Mary, could be a prophet with wisdom and power. They took offense and asked, who does this guy think he is? Jesus then sends out his disciples in pairs to proclaim in word and deed the good news of God's kingdom. But he warns them that the question about who they are and what authority they have to cast out spirits will linger over them as well. So the gospel reading today begins with King Herod also questioning who this guy named Jesus really is. Some were saying John the baptizer had been raised from the dead, and for this reason these powers were at work in him. But others said it is Elijah, and others said more generally it is a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. The feelings Herod had at that moment, perhaps shock, fear, or worry, that a person he had murdered might now be resurrected, leads to this flashback about how it all went down. King Herod had arrested John and put him in prison because Herod's wife Herodias wanted revenge. John had spoken truth to power. He had spoken out against their marriage, since marrying the wife of one's brother was illegal according to the law in Leviticus. Herodias not only went and John imprisoned, but also silenced and killed. Herod wouldn't go that far. He knew on some level that John was a righteous and holy man, and he liked listening to him. Perhaps John's wild presence was entertaining for him, or perhaps Herod was intellectually intrigued by John's insights. Whatever his intentions, we know that Herod did not want John killed. 
But then an opportunity arose for Herodias to enact further revenge. At Herod's extravagant birthday party, there was lavish eating and drinking. Herodias's daughter danced for the men who were important guests, political magistrates, military commanders, and prominent men in Galilee. The dancing of the young girl pleased them, and so Herod said to the daughter, Ask me for whatever you wish, and I will give it. In a drunken and foolish display of showing off in front of his guests, Herod swore to her that he would give her anything, even half his kingdom. The daughter consults with her mother, and Herodias seizes the moment. The daughter will ask for the head of John on a platter. Of course, King Herod could have declined this absurd request. He could have regained some clarity, and in his authority simply said, I was foolish to make such an offer. I will not execute John. But like so many people who hold prominent positions, who are in the limelight, Herod feels pressure to save face in front of his prominent guest. He goes forward with the absurd and gruesome plan. Showing his power in what seems like a matter of minutes, he has ordered the execution and delivered John's head as a centerpiece at the banquet table. The story ends with that image. John the Baptist has been silenced. His power has been cut off. Our reading ends with John's disciples taking his body and laying it in a tomb. As the hearers of this text, we know that Herod is wrong about the identity of Jesus. John the Baptist has not been resurrected as Jesus of Nazareth. But we also know something about John that Herodias and Herod seem to have overlooked. This John, the one who has been silenced by death and seemingly lost his power, is the same John who prepared the way for the Lord and who proclaimed to others that they too are called to prepare the way. In an important sense, then, John wasn't silenced, and he didn't lose his power. He fulfilled his task. He made way for Jesus by preaching and embodying God's kingdom. The task of preparing the way for the Lord is so foundational to God's good news that the Gospel of Mark opens with John and his proclamation. It reads, The beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah, See, I am sending my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way, the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. And a few verses later, it continues, John the baptizer appeared in the wilderness saying, The one who is more powerful than I is coming after me. So on the one hand, Herod is mistaken. Jesus is not John the Baptist raised from the dead. On the other hand, whatever guilt or fear he feels for misusing political power is not misplaced. For the one coming after John, Jesus, who inaugurates and embodies God's kingdom, is more powerful than him. John's proclamation at the Jordan River to prepare the way for the Lord is aimed at ordinary people who recognize that the kingdom of God is coming in their midst. 
God's kingdom is coming in the midst of a reality defined by imperial power and political leaders who were more concerned with saving face than doing justice. And into this historical reality, John enters and proclaims that the task of ordinary people like you and me is to prepare the way for the Lord. John's proclamation is good news on two accounts. First, the call for us to prepare the way means that our human effort matters. And second, because we are preparing the way for the Lord, the good news is also that it's not all up to us. I want to suggest this morning that John's call to prepare the way may be a life-giving framework through which we understand our work at St. Luke's as well as our personal vocations, as people with responsibilities in our chosen professions or volunteer work, as people who have responsibilities at home, as parents or spouses or caretakers. In other words, the call to prepare the way for the Lord is a call to human action and an affirmation of human agency. Protestant Christianity has too often downplayed the importance of human responsibility and the positive effect of human action in order to emphasize God's sovereignty and God's work in the world. As a part of my formation as a postulant looking towards ordination, I've been studying the popular textbook, A Theological Introduction to the Old Testament, written by four giants in the field. What Walter Brueggemann and the other scholars show is that throughout the Hebrew Bible, from the founding stories in the Pentateuch to the historical literature about ancient Israel's prophets and kings to the Psalms and wisdom literature, God consistently views human beings as partners, as co-creators of God's intention for the world. The actions of human beings can bring about positive effect, and often, when things are not going well, it is because human beings are failing to act. In one sense, as a congregation, we have a long history of understanding that our human effort matters. We have a campus of miracles, as we've come to call it, organizations we have created to meet human need and address structural injustice, including Crossroads Ministries and the Ansley School, which minister to people experiencing homelessness, including the Training and Counseling Center, which address people's emotional and psychological needs. And we have a faith and advocacy network made up of people addressing a range of policy issues, from voter suppression to gun violence to capital punishment. On the other hand, we are an ambitious lot and these and other concerns we have taken on can become overwhelming. Addressing endemic poverty in Atlanta, dismantling white supremacy, abolishing capital punishment, ending homelessness, resisting voter suppression, and reducing violence. Often, the more we become involved in a particular social concern or human need, the more we feel its crushing weight. There, in the middle of our effort, we need to hear the other side of the good news. It's not all up to us. 
when our power seems to have been cut off, whether by political realities or simply exhaustion from the complexity of the problems before us, the good news is that there is one coming after me, more powerful than I. If we are honest, this moment in the pandemic in some ways resembles Herod's banquet. We are in a moment of great celebration, and we should celebrate the vaccine, family reunions, the return of the gathered community. But as we move out of survival mode, the fallout from the pandemic becomes more and more visible, gruesome realities that are hard to ignore. In our personal lives, there may be great grief and loss. Preparing the way for the Lord might mean then committing ourselves to daily morning prayer, preparing the way for God to comfort, heal, or speak to us. For the one coming after me is more powerful than I. The fallout from the pandemic includes social realities like a mental health crisis, especially among youth, as our friend Lisa Boswell shared with me a few weeks ago, and as my husband and I have experienced on both sides of our family. The fallout includes social realities like increased economic vulnerability among so many in our society, making homelessness, poverty, and violence seem that much more intractable. And so this morning, God's good news to us is this. Our human effort matters. The work of our professions, when done for the common good, the work of our faith community, the work of caring for our families, none of it is in vain. And God's good news to us is this. There is one more powerful than I who comes after me. Our God comes when we think our power has been cut off, when all seems hopeless. Of course, really, the one who comes after is the one who has already gone before us and who is present with us as we labor in love. It is the Spirit of God who was with John, the Spirit of God incarnated in Jesus Christ. It is true the death and loss caused by the pandemic is a gruesome reality. Our task is to prepare the way of the Lord. Poverty and homelessness in Atlanta are a gruesome reality. Our task is to prepare the way of the Lord. White supremacy is a gruesome reality, as gruesome as a head on a platter. Our task is to prepare the way of the Lord. The death penalty is a gruesome reality. Our task is to prepare the way of the Lord. The anguish of mental illness is a gruesome reality. Our task is to prepare the way of the Lord. We can trust our preparation because the one coming after is more powerful than I. We are called and we are able to make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill will be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and a rough places a plain. The glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all people shall see it together. Make straight a highway for our God. Amen. <clears throat>